This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Andrew Miller. Hello. And Joshua Taylor. Thanks for having me. We also have Rufaro Manjepa. Hello. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hello. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone, or Thanksgiving break. Yesterday was Thanksgiving Day in America. I wrote in last night's Trumpet Brief about just how important it is to have an attitude of gratitude and thanks, and how wonderful it is to have a holiday that reminds us of this important spirit that we need to be in all the time, really. But more and more, uh, the holiday of Thanksgiving is being attacked in America by people with a toxic view of American history. We'll start with a story about this. To learn about this war on Thanksgiving, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, there definitely is a war on Thanksgiving, and I think it's one of the most important yet most uh, underreported stories in America right now, because for the past several decades, you've had uh, radical leftists on college campus across the nation really pushing this narrative that Thanksgiving's been uh, founded on slavery and racism and genocide. But but just in the last handful of years, that's that that ideas really moved off the college campuses into the mainstream media. And even this is the first year that I think I've even noticed some conservative uh, or or center-right publications picking up on it. Uh, I saw something on both the both Forbes and the Business Insider, which are normally more center-right publications running headlines like the real history of Thanksgiving is darker than you learned in school. Uh, so a pretty big movement coming in here. I think, I think this week, I think this week, uh, Joy Reid from The View probably summarized the, the whole movement of what the, that the media has been pushing best when she said that Thanksgiving is a simplistic fairy tale based on a Republican lie that erases the genocide of Native Americans. It's a holiday riddled with historical inaccuracies. It's built on this myth that the indigenous peoples welcomed their colonizers with open arms and ears of corn. And so uh, th that's from Joy Reid, who is pretty radical, but I've definitely seen this kind of the sentiment. It's starting to rub off on uh, some conservative publications, and it really deserves to be debunked because Joy Reid may say this holiday is riddled with historical inaccuracies, but really the, the, the history of Plymouth Colony is what is, it's an area of history that every historian wants all of history to be like, because when you, uh, when you look at it, uh, we still have a ton of primary sources, birth records, baptism records, death records, marriage records, letters. Uh, both the Wampanoag Village and the Plymouth Settlement have been thoroughly archaeologically excavated. And so we have a ton of information on what what really happened here. This isn't just oral traditions and, and fairy tales. It's like anyone who's actually studied uh, this topic seriously knows what happened in Plymouth. And when you look at those letters and those historical sources, one thing you don't see a lot of is genocide. I mean, the relationships between the, uh, the Wampanoag tribe and the, the Pilgrim were extremely peaceful. One of the brightest spots uh, in uh, indigenous relations with the uh, Europeans in American history for the first 50 years. But what you do see, you don't see the genocide and you don't see the racism and you don't see all the things that the, the view says that you, you'll see if you look at the real history. But what you do see is uh, a ton of references and letters to Plymouth being the new Israel, uh, it being the new Jerusalem, uh, recommendations that their people really should learn Hebrew so that they can read the Bible in its, uh, in its original language, uh, legal treatises on how we need to base the, uh, the Commonwealth governments that took place in the colonies, uh, 
on uh, the republic that um, that Moses established in the Bible. Uh, you see all the colonial charters uh, quoting chapter and verse from the Bible. Uh, so there's really this, this strong belief that America was the new Israel. Uh, and I mean, they, they were very passionate about that. So they sent many missionaries to the uh, to the Native Americans. And uh, like I said, in the case of the pilgrims, like pretty much the entire Wampanoag tribe converted to Christianity just based off their example within the the first 50 years. Uh, the only military conflicts rose 50 years later, and it was actually when one of the chief Massasoit, he was the the chief at the first Thanksgiving, one of his younger sons started a civil war against his older brother because he didn't like his older brother's Christian religion. Uh, so even that was pretty well internal uh, between that tribe. But when you start looking at the primary histories, you'll see that the uh, uh, the, the fairy tale is what the the left is peddling, and it's not trying to it's not trying to. Uh, they're not trying to cover up for genocide. They're really trying to blot out the understanding that Plymouth had, especially uh, about their connection, at least spiritually, uh, back to the laws, uh, language, and practices of ancient Israel. Well, that is fascinating history. We really appreciate you uh, bringing that to us. Uh, anything that uh, you could direct people to to understand more about some of the history that you're describing there? Yeah, our book, Character in Crisis, um, it's uh, co-authored by Mr. Stephen Flurry and Mr. Gerald Flurry, talks a lot about what the America's founding fathers understood about Israel, uh, although it does focus more on the um, the generation that wrote the Constitution, uh, and a little bit, but not as much on the generation that did the first Thanksgiving, uh, and then of course beyond that book, that that book will probably be the best thing we have for the specifics about that the history I'm talking about. But then we have the United States and Britain and Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong as well, which takes an uh, even bigger picture uh, overview. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Miller. In Jerusalem on Wednesday, two coordinated terrorist attacks had deadly results. To learn about this, we'll turn to Brent Noctegal. Yes, on Wednesday, we had a terrorist attack that we haven't seen for about seven years in, in Jerusalem, actually. This was a, a bomb uh, two bombs that went off, one that caused uh, two, uh, ca one casualty as it stands right now, 20, 20 other people injured, um, and one person is still fighting for their life in in hospital. This was on Wednesday morning, uh, just after 7, uh, at one of the main bus stops, actually, exiting the city of Jerusalem. If you've ever come to Jerusalem and you're leaving the city and you're on your way to Tel Aviv, the big bus stop to the right, where everyone seems to be trying to hitchhike, uh, this was this was the one that that went off just after peak hour or just during peak hour. And I'm actually quite surprised that there weren't more uh, casualties. This was a bomb that was placed behind a bush in a backpack, um, loaded with ball bearings, nails, uh, just something that we haven't seen. We saw it once in 2016, uh, just after, actually after a couple of months after I moved here with my family. Uh, there was one that went off and on side on a bus. Um, and this is these are the kind of attacks that have been uh, that have been known to Israelis going back to the early 2000s, uh, up to two th 2000, 2005, the Second Intifada. A lot of bus bombings uh, took place, and then we've had ever since the construction of this massive wall that that makes sure that anyone coming from the West Bank has to go through a checkpoint to get into the main population centers of Jerusalem. It's really cut off a lot of these more serious. Uh, terrorist attacks with explosions and that's why people have taken to the knives or the, the using the vehicles or the bulldozers or something like that any other weapon they can find so it's hard to determine why a bomb could come go off like this uh, whether this was a failure of Israel security services or, or not whether this announces a different turn uh, in Israel's fight against terrorism or not uh, I think the police, well, there's a gag order right now on any details uh, on the attack and who was the perpetrator. 
Um, this was likely a cell because there was another bus stop that exploded um, in Ramotz, which is about uh, just a few miles away from this one, about half an hour later. Thankfully, there was no, no, no not too many people around that bus stop, and so no one was 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 killed in that one. Um, however, this was at least the police have come out and said it was definitely a terrorist cell, not one person um, that's that's been able to create these bombs and 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 uh, detonate them re- remotely. This is a critical time for Israel as it transitions its government back to a Benjamin Netanyahu-led government. Uh, and this really is not isolated, even though it was uh, this terrorist attack was more uh, uh, deadly than some others. There actually has been quite an increase in terrorist activity recently. Maybe you can just uh, put this in the context of the bigger picture of what's happening in Israel. Yeah, so terrorist attacks, particularly in the in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, this area that's largely controlled by the Palestinians, but lots of Israeli settlements um, in this area ha- have experienced a lot of attacks, including bordering on Jerusalem, like this one, uh, over the past three or four months. Uh, each week, there's some people that are killed either by a drive-by shooting, uh, people that are mowed down by a vehicle, um, people that are stabbed, police officers that are attacked. Uh, you probably don't hear too much about it, but there's there's at least there's at least a fatality or two a week um, that is caused by terrorism over the past I would say three months. Uh, Carolyn Glick has written a piece just came out today. She's an Israeli journalist that we follow quite closely, and she speaks of a a turf war that's taking place right now among the Palestinians inside the West Bank for power. Uh, over the over the future of of or who's going to be the leading terrorist organization inside the West Bank, she sees two contenders. One being the continuation of the the PLO, the Palestinian Authority itself. Um, there have been a few attacks in the past uh, three weeks where you had Palestinian people on the payroll of the Palestinian Authority, their family members killing Israelis, um, and so. This is a, a group that is largely, or the, the Palestinian Authority is largely works in, in cahoots with the Israelis to, to make sure that Hamas or other terrorist organizations don't become too strong. Iranian-backed terrorist organizations don't too come, become too strong in the West Bank. And so they do work together. However, we've had those people themselves that Israel is working with, their family members, start to kill Israelis. And then you have an increase in Iranian-backed attacks. Now, there's no indication at yet that Iran was behind this one. However, a day after the attack, there was footage that was uh, acquired by an Iranian hacker group of security cameras of the blast site, internal Israeli security camera footage Hmm. that was released to the public on Telegram through an Iranian hacker group. And so she's wondering, how did they get that? How did they get access to this? A couple of months ago, Eilat, the southern city of Israel, their early warning system for incoming missiles was hacked by this same group, Iranian-backed group. And so she sees that you've got an increase in Iranian involvement. You also have increased number of attacks, especially over the last month, that were um, perpetrated by Islamic Jihad. This is... A terrorist, or a terrorist group that answers directly and is paid directly by Iran. Um, so you have both of these uh, terrorist organizations, one uh, that is backed by the Iranians, another that is part of the Palestinian Authority itself. And she links the aging, uh, the impending death of Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority that's largely in control of the West Bank. He's 87, very sick. And so he, she's, she writes that Israel has already expect, always expected that there would be a Palestinian civil war for power in the West Bank. But she has come to believe that, that the turf war is not going to be one Palestinian against another. It'll be whoever kills the most Israelis is going to win the Palestinian street in the West Bank. And so now you have this increasing frequency and severity of attacks on Israelis over the past few months basically Iranian-backed terrorists and then Fatah or PLO terrorists trying to gain the upper hand. And she has this one, just one quote from her. 
She says that since all Palestinian factions share the same enthusiasm for killing Israeli Jews, none of them has an ideological problem with accepting Iranian money or guidance for the operations. If Iran wants to take over the Palestinian theater, now is the time to act. And so it is, she says. Well, it is interesting. You would imagine that uh, Netanyahu would have uh, quite a lot to to say, a strong response to to this type of thing. What do you expect to happen going forward? It's it's a little hard to say, but yeah, it is hard to say because the the just this week another thing that's very connected to this is that the Biden administration upped its support for the Palestinian Authority, raising. Mm rank. Uh, the, he, they now have a special envoy for Palestinian affairs, Hattie Ammer, this man we've been following that's been bed with Qataris and everybody else that hates Israel. And so uh, Carolyn Glicks, the only way that she sees going forward is that Benjamin Netanyahu is, is going to have to prepare himself to take over the Palestinian territories by force in the West Bank, something we haven't seen since 93. And just you need to go in there. If you're in charge of all the Palestinians in the West Bank, so do so be it. You'll be have to be in charge of the civilian uh, theater as well inside the West Bank. But we need to get rid of the Palestinian Authority itself. But if he does that, you've got the Biden administration that is going to become knocking, well, not knocking on the door of the Israelis, but just absolutely flat out mad because they are trying to up their in- involvement with the Palestinians right now. So it's a hard task to try and put down this terrorism uh, for Benjamin Netanyahu when he gets gets in office, and there is no easy solution. Bible prophecy has a lot to say about the future of Jerusalem. Where would you direct people to understand this in the la- larger context? I, th- I think something that people can read is The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem. The second last chapter of that, The Final Crusade, goes into why an Iranian takeover of the West Bank is highly likely and where that fits in the, in the, in the prophecy, a uh, biblical prophecy picture. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Noctegal. Over now to Ukraine, where many people are in tough conditions going into the winter months after Russian missile barrages in the capital city of Kiev. For this, we'll go to Rufaro Manjepa. Yes, sir. On Wednesday, uh, Russia sent in about 70 missiles into Ukraine, and they killed six people, and they wounded more than 30. Uh, some of the people that were attacked um, were people who were at a uh, maternity ward in Vinyansk, and one infant actually died from that attack and a lot of power sources a lot of water resources were damaged or destroyed and uh the i think it's the mayor of kiev vitaly klitschko he said that there's no power in in uh, certain parts of this the capital and in maybe three or four other cities and that water supplies had been suspended and this followed earlier attacks um as well earlier in the day and it's just really been getting a lot worse over there in Ukraine, so many attacks. And um, a lot of people view it as an intentional um, action to really make the winter really bad for Ukrainians on the part of uh, on the part of uh, Vladimir Putin. Ukraine is really trying to bring the, the power back, but it's 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 a pretty bad time. It's interesting, though, that earlier on in this week, you looked online and there were a lot of things trending about how uh russia is losing the war how it's on the back foot the entire time um i think it was probably trending with about a hundred thousand tweets at one point that particular hashtag russia is losing you have a lot of people in ukraine saying um this is this is from the wall street journal somebody who lives in ukraine saying that we're confident in our eventual victory we just need more weapons in order to bring that victory closer you've got a lot of uh, a lot of reports about the ukrainian president just saying that yeah we need more from the united states we need to receive more weapons and then everything's going to be okay but you see you know those reports coming out those statements coming out and then immediately afterwards putin sends out these missile strikes and he he kills an infant and he kills another five people you know people can can say what they want and a lot of it is being driven by optimism um but vladimir putin isn't 
lowering his his threshold for violence here. He really does seem to be willing to 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 push the envelope as much as possible. He's really willing to uh, enforce a lot of damage and destruction in order to get what he wants. And that's something that it seems the West just still isn't ready to accept yet. And even some people within Ukraine who think that um, just acquiring more weapons is going to be enough to deter this man. So maybe you could just put this in the context of uh, why we are looking at Putin's actions as uh, this is not something that he is going to uh, to be willing to surrender or accept defeat in this war. Right. Well, um, those familiar with what we've written at the trumpet will know that for for quite a long time now, we've spoken about uh, Vladimir Putin's determination to bring back um, the old Soviet empire, how he's spoken about how the destruction of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. We've, we've constantly pointed to that, and, and that's based on um, our understanding of Bible prophecy. Our editor-in-chief, he's said that uh, Vladimir Putin would be responsible for violent conquest, that he would set in motion some astounding historical events. He's, he's written about this based on a prophecy in Ezekiel 38, that talks about uh, a figure known as the Prince of Rosh. And here's what Mr. Mr. Flurry says. He says, Ezekiel 38 is an especially important passage in the Bible about Russia. And this whole chapter contains staggering understanding about the powerful Russian empire and its widely feared prince. I strongly believe that this chief prince is Vladimir Putin, and I have explained why many times over the past 20 years. The alarming and sobering scenes coming out of Ukraine today dramatically prove that this understanding is right. Bible prophecy is being fulfilled this very moment in Ukraine. That's why it's so important to look at what Vladimir Putin is actually doing. There's Bible prophecy that backs up the fact that he is determined to seize control of Ukraine. And what we can expect is the level of violence to go even higher. You know, these losses that get reported, while accurate in many cases, only serve to make Putin more of a caged animal. And when he's backed into a corner, we'll be able to expect a lot more violence like we've been seeing. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. We will link to that booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, in the show notes. We do appreciate that, Mr. Manjepa. We'll look at another effect of the war on Ukraine after a couple of missiles landed in Poland last week. Poland's response was quite interesting, even prophetically significant. For this story, we'll go to Joshua Taylor. Yeah. So when those uh, missiles landed in Poland November 15th, you had two sides to this. You had uh, Ukraine claiming that it was Russia that launched these missiles as we've recovered. And, and then you had Russia saying it was Ukraine. Now, what's really interesting, as you said, was Poland's re reaction and specifically Germany's reaction. Uh, on Right away, the German uh, defense minister uh, or his spokesman for him said that they could uh, have German Eurofighters in Polish airspace to help secure their airspace as early as the next day after these missiles landed. And then less than a week later, uh, the German defense minister, Christine Lambrecht, said that they could uh, deploy Patriot anti-aircraft systems to Poland as well as those German uh, Eurofighters right away. And Poland agreed to this. In their statement, uh, she said, Poland is our friend and our ally and particularly exposed as Ukraine's neighbor. So this is pretty amazing because, as we know, just recent history with World War II, Germany invaded Poland and left it up a wreck. And even fast forward past that, after World War II, Poland was a member of the Soviet Union, not by choice, more or less, but it was, it was taken up by the Soviet Union and behind the Iron Curtain. So what's, what makes this amazing is just how up until you know recent history, even just three decades ago, this kind of military alliance between Poland and Germany is something you would never have expected or even seen. And but there was one man who did have did see that and did predict that. And that was the predecessor to the trumpet and to our parent organization. And that was Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. On August the 27th, 1980, he wrote, uh, wrote an article that said 
Will Poland free itself from Soviet domination and join with Yugoslavia, Romania, and possibly Czechoslovakia, and with Germany, and he lists off a few other uh, nations there, but to in a resurrected Holy Roman Empire to dominate Europe and equal the Soviet Union and the USA in world power? So that was you know over 30 years ago. And again, back at that time, it was still behind the Iron Curtain. So you might think, be looking at what's happening in you know Poland right now with Germany sending over these Patriot anti-missile systems, and as well as its German Eurofighters, and go, well, this is a temporary thing. Well, not so fast. Germany has sent that same uh, Patriot anti-aircraft anti-missile system to uh, Slovakia, and it still has them there right now. And again, coming from. Uh, the German defense minister, this is another, uh, she was talking to a German uh, German newspaper. She said, until the uh, missile systems in Slovakia will be there until the end of 2023 and potentially even beyond. And this isn't just a, a small trend that we're seeing. Uh, Ger- Germany has is increasingly, especially with what's happening in Ukraine, taking more and more responsibility for the uh, safety of its eastern neighbors. It's a pretty important trend. As you mentioned, the history between Poland and Germany, you would think would give the Polish uh, great pause before they would undertake uh, this this kind of cooperation with Germany or look to Germany in this way. And yet, the fact that they are doing so under these conditions, this is something that we have been talking about for some time. Our editor-in-chief has been mentioning, particularly Eastern Europe uh, and Europe more generally, looking to Germany for leadership, this is exactly what Bible prophecy tells us is going to happen. Yeah, both pointed to the Bible and to, uh, to history to, to make this prophecy, to make this point. And specifically just the how a crisis is what was going to be needed to bring them together. Just even recently, there's been a lot of disputes between Germany and Poland. Uh, Poland has, was demanding that Germany pay war reparations for the damage it has done. But now that there's a, this massive crisis going on, now that missiles are landing in, within their borders, it's pretty incredible how quickly these two nations have come are coming together, even militarily. So um, if it, our readers would like to know more, I would direct them to the, our trends article on, on the trumpet, Europe's push toward a unified military. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Taylor. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, Iran announced that it has started producing near-weapons-grade enriched uranium at a second nuclear facility. We'll talk about unrest in China over ongoing COVID restrictions, Germany bracing for a tough winter without Russian energy, and South Africa already seeing rolling blackouts. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Iran is being much more open these days about its intent to manufacture its own nuclear weapons. This was evident in an announcement this week. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal. Iran has uh, consistently said that if there are resolutions against its nuclear program by international bodies, that they'll strike back with even more uh nuclear development. And that's what happened this week. There was an announcement from a number of countries that they are not going to accept that Iran has not come clean about how it's been using uh, nuclear technology in the past, basically saying that they have tried to develop nuclear weapons. And so uh, they released that and Iran struck back saying on uh, as of Tuesday that Iran is going to start enriching uranium in its Fordow site up to 60 percent purity. So this and the IAEA has confirmed this. This is the site that's underground, that's almost, it seems, impossible to hit from an, an above-ground weapon. Uh, and so up to this point in this site, they've only been enriching to 3 to 5%, uh, n- far from weapons grade. Now they're going to 60% with a bunch of faster uh, centrifuges, and then, uh, which in a place which is impossible, it seems, or very difficult to 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 for Israel or somebody else to try and slow down this process, um, which is a big worry. Uh, they already have enough uh, nuclear you know, enriched uranium to sixty percent for about four nuclear weapons, um, 
should they choose to develop to 90%, it'll take them a month to have enough fuel for night for four nuclear weapons. And so the fact that they are now developing this capacity and actually activating this capacity in a site that cannot be hit by at least easily mm-hmm. from the air by anyone, the United States or Israel, it's deeply, it should be deeply concerning for people. Yeah, much much more uh, dangerous the fact that it would be produced at this facility versus the uh, the one that they've already been producing uranium at this enrichment level. Yeah, so the Natan site has has been destroyed multiple times, at least right. part of it, uh, by Israel. This is the one that's largely above ground, um, and you know it's hard to know whether Israel has any. Well, they probably do have some spies that are involved in Iran's uh, nuclear uh, uh, production, I'm sure. Um, so perhaps they could put a device down there somehow, um, but maybe not. And do are we willing to take that risk? I think Israel right now is is considering its options. Benjamin Netanyahu, in his recently uh, released uh, autobiography, talks at length about uh, his his desire to not put Israel's security in the hands of anybody else. If Iran gets past a certain amount, we are going to attack them. We will attack their facilities. Uh, so maybe this is preparatory to what Iran sees as, as an incoming Israeli government that is not fearful of a U.S. response to an Israeli attack. The current government is very, and Israel is very afraid of upsetting the U.S. had they attacked or had they attack uh, if they go after Iran's nuclear weapons program. But Netanyahu is not going to be fearful of that or at least prioritize Israel's security first and foremost. So what is Iran doing? They're, they're basically blaming the West for their own belligerent behavior and their own not coming clean about their past uh, use for nu- for development of nuclear weapons and saying, because you are coming up and saying bad things about us, we're going to do exactly what you're worried that we're going to do <laughs> or right. done in the past, which just that's just the absolute brazenness of the Iranians to feel like they can act like this without any uh, repercussions. Well, I mean, and it also shows the uh, just the fecklessness of the United Nations and the international community being able to actually do something about this. Yeah, no one's got the guts to do anything. Of course, you have Russia and China that are right now would would put a stop to any type of international consensus mm-hmm. against action on the in the Iranians on the Iranians, and and so um, Israel is going to have to act alone if it's still even possible to do so. Just another point to this as well. Uh, another article which was brought out by uh, Josh this week is that the biggest thing that international observers and even Israelis have said over the years that, yes, we have the the, the key metric is not Iran's ability to have weapons grade uranium. The key metric is is the delivery system. Is Iran able to deliver a nuclear weapon, even if it gets the weapons grade uranium? And he's got this really interesting article. I think it was a published or was about to be published entitled Iran may already have have an intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, and it goes into the fact that they could have this technology ability already to deliver such a such a system. So these should be worrying times for people in regards to Iran's nuclear weapons program, not just for Israel. It doesn't need an international con- uh, an ICBM to hit Israel. It's developing this so this ability so that it can um, impact other nations, Europe, United States, so on. Where would you send people for understanding the prophetic implications of what you're talking about? Uh, Mr. Flurry's book, The King of the South, goes into why having a nuclear weapons arsenal can really give Iran its prophesied push the way that it'll push, uh, in particular, the European uh, nations to respond. All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Noctegal. We'll link to that in the show notes for the program today. COVID restrictions have been relaxed in most of the world, but not in China, where 400 million people remain in lockdown. This has caused a lot of unrest. To learn about this, we'll go back to Rufaro Manjepa. Imagine you're stuck in lockdown. You're not allowed to travel to see your family or go to work or leave work. And then you turn on the TV and you see... 80,000 people packed in a stadium Mm. uh, watching games at the World Cup and they're not wearing masks. They're not being forced to swab or or have vaccine passports. They're having the time of their lives and you're stuck at home. 
That's what's happening in China right now. Yeah. Uh, 31,000 new infections were report, reported overnight uh, earlier this week, and it caused uh, the Chinese government to, to immediately put people back into lockdown. I think about 400 million people in China are in lockdown right now uh, because of, of this, this rise in infections. And there's a lot of growing discontent among the Chinese because of this. Uh, at a, uh, I think the world's largest iPhone factory this week, there was a, a riot, which is something that's really rare to see in China uh, happen. But people are really growing discontent uh, with these measures. It, the riot came after the city declared a five-day lockdown and people had to stay at home. They had to submit to regular testing. Um, and and it's just it's just really shown something that we haven't seen in China before. And it really is based on what they're seeing happening ev everywhere else. Uh, here's what here's what one blogger said, and this article was immediately censored probably about three hours after it was put up. He said, the Qatar World Cup is opened and we haven't seen the fans wearing masks there and we haven't heard reports that they must provide negative PCR test results. Aren't they living on the same planet as us? Doesn't the coronavirus harm them? And that's really interesting seeing questions like this coming out from a place like China of all places. Um, but the bottom line is it doesn't matter because you've got an authoritarian government in charge in, chi in China and they do not care about that. Um, you've got an article from uh, The Times uh, that says, why aren't China's COVID lockdowns working? You know, it's not like China was fully open uh, before this five-day lockdown was imposed. There still were restrictions. There still were so many places with uh, intermediate levels of lockdown, but it hasn't been working. It hasn't been fruitful. Doesn't matter to the government there. They're still imposing these harsh lockdowns, still building um, thousands of, of detention centers, quarantine centers for people to go into. And you just see the level of irrational <laughs> judgment that comes when you have a communist uh, government in charge. And really what you see happening in, Ch in China should be a warning to Western countries about the extent of what having an authoritarian regime in charge can do to you. It defies logic, it defies sense, and it's all about making sure that they maintain their grip on power. Well, that is definitely a lesson that we have learned in a lot of nations uh, as we've seen governments all over the world take powers unto themselves that they really uh, shouldn't have. They've usurped power. They've uh, stripped people of their rights uh, to some degree or another. To see this happening in China to the extent that it is 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 quite extraordinary. And as you're talking about these things and just how many people there are that are under these kinds of restrictions, I think it's remarkable that China has been performing as well as it has economically, militarily, in so many ways. It's it's mm -hmm. it's continuing to to move forward. And you just wonder what what would the country be like if they just you know stopped uh restricting the people the way that they they did uh china is a, a nation with real ambition um uh, what what do you make of uh of this like if you're looking at this from a standpoint of of bible prophecy and china's role in in time events well what's really interesting you look at you look at the whole situation from you know the the ground level from the perspective of the people that are under this rule. There was a really interesting um, section in the Times story I mentioned earlier, where um, apparently some people who have been under lockdown measures and had the measures get relaxed actually met um, that relaxation with resistance. They didn't want the COVID measures to get relaxed. They wanted them to stay in place. Some people actually got used to and embraced being under the thumb of an authoritarian and they didn't want to get up uh from under that and that's just a remarkable uh, a remarkable thing about human nature that you can be so oppressed that you 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 start to almost worship your oppressor and embrace the oppression and i think you know with what bible prophecy says about China's role in the end time, I think that's something that might be happening on a large scale. 
Um, in Luke 21, Jesus Christ spoke about a time called the times of the Gentiles, um, a time when when these Gentile nations would, would rise and come to dominate the world. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Joe Fleury, has explained that um, these times of the Gentiles represent a time when the nations of America and Britain begin to decline and you have non-Western uh, nations like America and Britain uh, start to rise, nations such like China um, that begin to dominate the world. And you wonder sometimes how that would happen exactly. You know, you see these reports of of unrest growing in China and you, maybe you might think that um, the authoritarianism isn't going to flourish at all. But then you see that there's a lot of people who believe that these authoritarian governments are in the right and they will actually fight against having that authoritarianism removed. Um, that's what you're going to see bring about this era of the Gentiles, a time when nations like China really do devastate the world. And it's that kind of rule that you see in China that's going to characterize the entire world in a very short time to come. Well, we will uh, we will link to that article. What are the times of the Gentiles in the show notes for the program today? And as you say, this is a crucial end time prophecy. And you see those times of the Gentiles approaching. You see the signs of that uh, that prophesied time. Uh, really, everywhere you look, to one degree or another, we appreciate you bringing that to us, Mr. Manjepa. We spoke in the first half about Ukrainians living without power and water. In Germany, as winter approaches, they are bracing themselves for that kind of deprivation. To learn about this, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor. Yeah, so the head of Germany's Federal Office for Civil Protection and Disaster Relief, Ralph Tiesler, warned the German public to expect power outages and other supply problems throughout the winter. He said, quote, We have to assume that there will be blackouts in this winter. By that, I mean a regional and temporary interruption in the power supply. The cause will not only be energy shortages, but also the targeted temporary shutdown of the networks by the operators with the aim of protecting the networks and not endangering the overall supply. So this is pretty interesting coming from Germany because Germany is a, well, it's, it's a first rate nation. It's got all the amenities you'd expect of a modern power. And unlike Ukraine, it's not currently under attack. So you can, you know, with Ukraine, you can kind of forgive them for the fact that they're having power problems. They're getting they're getting bombed by Putin. But Germany is not. Germany has no none of those issues. And despite the fact that uh, Germany's gas uh, storage facilities are nearing capacity, experts think that that supply will not be enough to get the country through the winter, especially if Russia continues keeping gas from Germany. Uh, Mr. Tiesler uh, warned the German public to be prepared for further crises and not to assume that everything would be readily available all the time. He, he even told them to purchase battery-powered radios and even candles. So you have to look at kind of what's been causing this. And Germany's power, power problems, as I just kind of alluded to, really is their own fault. Germany used to have a lot of nuclear uh, power plants. They've been shutting those down as, in the last few decades. Uh, in favor of other other renewable energies, which has been just causing incredible uh, instability in their power grid. And then to shore up that instability, they've been really relying on Russian natural gas, which because of the uh, war in Ukraine, sanctions, and then the explosions of those uh, last, I think it was in last month in October, they haven't been getting a, uh, that much natural gas from Russia anymore. And Vladimir Putin is happily slow walking repairs to those pipelines because he's trying to force Germany to certify the operation of the second pipeline, the Nord Stream 2, because he knows that with this upcoming winter, if he keeps slow walking those repairs, Germany is either going to have to go uh, have a cold winter, have these power outages, or they're going to have to certify that second, uh, second pipeline, which Ger uh, Russia really wants. The number of pressures on the German public right now are, are very high. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things that are creating political instability within Germany. And this, this is what has been uh, kind of roiling these political problems within Germany for quite a long time uh, that led to 
uh, Angela Merkel leaving office, Olaf Scholz coming into power, a lot of public dissatisfaction uh, with leaders. Uh, an unhappy German public is something that we need to be concerned about. Yeah. If you look back historically uh, in the lead up to World War II and the rise of Hitler, a lot of the reasons why Hitler came to power were very similar reasons. You know, you had economic instability. You had um, outside pressures from foreign nations. You know, the German people were dissatisfied with their leaders, with how that the Weimar Republic was operating. It was it was not doing very well. A lot of corruption, a lot of uh, infighting, politicking. And in many ways, we're seeing a lot of those trends today. And it's leading to, you know, an economic crisis for Europe and even the world. And that economic crisis and that dissatisfaction that's, you know, driving this political dissatisfaction inside of Germany, it's going to lead to a new, stronger leader, as we prophetically call it, a German strongman. Um, Josue Michels has a great article on the trumpet right now. Germany prepares for power outages and crises where he highlights this. And he quotes uh, from uh, he quotes from Mr. Gerald Fleury, the trumpet editor in chief, in how the global financial crisis will produce Europe's 10 kings. If a crisis develops, will the Germans call for a new Fuhrer? Your Bible says that it is going to happen. So inside of Germany, you can really expect it as these power outages, uh, supply shortages happen. It's going to keep pushing the Germans to the point where they are willing to accept maybe a more radical or more extreme leader than they would have in the past. And I guess the, the other aspect of this that is worth talking about is uh, just how dependent Germany is on on Russian energy. Um, Germany's got to find energy from somewhere. Uh, it doesn't produce it itself. Uh, what do you expect to see going forward? Well, historically, one thing we've seen Germany do whenever it's getting ready to go to war, whether it was the Holy Roman Empire, whether in World War II, they always shore up their eastern borders. They always you know, look to secure their resources. So back in World War II, that was the infamous uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, where Russia and Germany decided to divvy up Poland and then you know, go there, do their own separate things. And what we can expect now uh, is something very similar. Mr. Stephen Flurry wrote in an article uh, recently about the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage. Uh, now the world is getting a hard look at just how bad things can get in Europe without Russian natural gas. As Europe moves into, into the winter, expect Germany to make some Machiavellian energy deals with Putin. So going forward, we can really expect to see Germany and Russia probably secretly and under the table, making some key important deals to secure each other's uh, futures so that they can both continue their imperialistic, uh, expansionistic uh, ambitions. All right. Well, uh, we will link to this article from Josue Michel's Germany prepares for power outages and crises, as well as uh, an article on this potential deal between Germany and Russia, Nord Stream Pipeline Sabotage by Stephen Flurry. Thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Taylor. South Africa is already seeing rolling blackouts. In fact, it has been for about 14 years, but these are expected to grow even worse. To learn why, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yes, South Africa's state-run power plant is warning that blackouts are set to intensify and is desperately looking for more diesel to fuel some of its auxiliary power plants. Um, if it gets some of that diesel, that would probably help, but most experts do still expect these blackouts to continue as they have for the past 14 years uh, and get worse in the near future. Just as the uh, power plants that generate so much of South Africa's electricity get older and more dilapidated. This is really kind of a tragic tale of a, a fall from glory in that from in the in that post World War II period, South Africa really was kind of like the powerhouse of sub-Saharan Africa, generating most of the electricity in the region. Uh, and then when they, they nationalized their, uh, their main power company and then turned it over to uh, cronies of the African National Congress after uh, apartheid, it's just been plagued from um, endemic corruption, for one, and then also just the natural consequences of a socialistic system. 
there's no competition. There's no private power companies that's challenging ESCOM. They just have the one company, uh, and then politicians uh, give a give the management positions in that one company to friends of theirs, who uh, whether they have any experience or knowledge on how to run an electrical company or not. Uh, there have been plenty of scandals over the years of, of those people like funneling off uh, some of the profits for themselves instead of actually using it to run the business. Uh, and then just because the uh, of the socialist system there, the, the African National Congress uh, is wanting to stay in power by giving power, giving electrical power to uh, a lot of the impoverished blacks in the regions, which might seem like a nice thing uh, to do. But like I said, when you have a state-run electrical company already dogged with corruption charges, and now you're giving electricity to a large share of your population for free, you don't actually have enough... (laughs) You don't have enough fees come in to like model. to run this thing, so that's why they do the load shedding. They said instead of only giving electricity to part of the population, the part that can pay for it, yeah. uh, they give it to the whole population and then just turn it off for every few hours, right? So that you're you're still giving it. You've still got a piece of the pie, but it's like everyone gets like electricity just during certain hours, and that really is going to get worse in the. In the near future, and one of these things that just highlights the fact that when uh, when Nelson Mandela first started giving officials from the Communist Party of South Africa high-level cabinet post, our editor-in-chief commented that South Africa really was the first of the Israelite nations to surrender its birthright. And uh, we have an article we can put in the show notes called uh, A Warning from South Africa, which kind of highlights this uh this phenomenon that like uh, of the nations descended from ancient Israel South Africa's kind of the uh, canary in the coal mine if you will it's like when you look at South Africa and see what sort of problems they're experiencing that's kind of the direction England and the United States and uh, Australia and New Zealand are are heading to some years down the road and uh so we've, we're definitely experimenting a lot with Marxist politics here in the United States. And so uh, and, and some of the states that experience more with that, like California, have had their own rolling blackouts during the like peak of summer heating season. But, yeah, you look down to like South Africa, you can uh, you can see what we can uh, expect in California and other states if they continue going down the path they're going down. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at the trumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Andrew Miller, Rufaro Manyepa, Joshua <laughs> Rufaro Manyepa, Joshua Taylor, and Brent Noctegal. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of G.K. Chesterton. Thanks are the highest form of thought, and gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.